innocence again draws near. Spring comes with its flowers, autumn with the moon, summer with breezes, winter with snow. When useless things don't stick in the mind, that is your best season, woman Haoki. As we persevere, persevere, as we persevere in the tasks of the upward road, we discover that stopping the mind road is not an addition of effort, not a struggle to stay with the breath, but a release of the burdens we carry, our pride, our anger, our anxious attachment to even trivial outcomes, our ancient griefs, our efforts to be good. Psyche falls into slumber and then other forces can aid her. Even at the very beginning of meditation, as we struggle to uncoil the tendrils of night, we get a glimpse of a place we are not yet ready to inhabit, a field of silence and the freshness of new fallen snow. The virtuous pains of purgatory, purgatory. Are, purgatory are subsiding. Innocence again draws near and the engines of eternity bear us up. The experience of meditation can now be described not in terms of what we hold on to, the breath, thought we do hold on, but in terms of what holds on to us, the, the primeval silence. In this fashion, our meditation is like psyche's sleep. Mm. Um, okay. The ancient basis of spiritual practice is always stillness and silence. We may sit under a tree, cross-legged in a quiet room, or by the fire. The most uh, the important thing is that we turn toward an intense inwardness. There, silence comes to us out of the dawn of the world, from the earliest band gathered on the sandstone cliffs, looking for the sun to rise, from the hunter waiting in the spinifex grass for the kangaroo, holding the spear out of sight in his toes. We are at the water hole at dawn. The beasts arrive and drink and leave, yet we remain. Thoughts, memories, sorrows, excitements, they rise and have their time and fall away. We sink deeper into silence until it becomes its own desire and fulfillment. <coughs> we yearn to immerse ourselves, to touch this ground every day. Even our longing though, is just something in the mind, a barrier to the truest silence and the barest perception. When we do not cling even to spiritual things, we find that we have fallen into the mystery beneath the beneath of life. 
underneath even the dark matter, beyond knowing and not knowing. And at this moment, life returns to us without its veils. Devoted attention sets us in relation to the source. Everything is born out of the silence. Grass, rivers, stars, children, animals, and love. <coughs> Naming the animals. From the point of view of great silence, the labor of sorting the grains, which seemed before so hard, becomes easy and graceful. All being comes to help us. We return to a time utterly fresh. We name the animals in the first garden. Whatever is newly born needs a name. And now that we are more and more welcomed by the silence, naming becomes our job. We have to notice, to bless with attention the bees before us, both the rough and the smooth. To name is to bring an attitude of wonder to the work of sorting, and even to the work of dealing with difficult states of mind. When we can name what is happening to us, we are no longer wholly identified with it, with it and have begun to separate from the grasping dark. If what we feel is known and named to be a tiger, then the whole world is not tiger. We can divide the compulsion and the image, the action and the emotion. There is a landscape through which we move. This landscape through which we move. Trees casting their own stripes on the forest floor. Places where tiger is not. At dawn, the world appears on the shores of the vast ocean. Out of the mist, some crocodiles, wombats, land rovers, and courts of justice. Separation gives us being and world. Being accumulates in each of the things that appear from the waters. And there, on the shore, we who are ourselves barely dry, we who are also pieces of the original stuff, fall in love with other pieces, saying with primordial delight, Woman, man, apple. I, I'm continually reminded how when uh, God created the earth and the heavens, he gave man the job of naming things and how significant that was. And this seems to be about that. Of separating things. Everything has to be welcome and acknowledged. And with this movement, soul too becomes intertwined with our ascent. When we give names, we devise an intimate link with what is named. We incur obligations that serve to establish us more steadfastly in the daylight realm. Adam named the animals on parade before him 
And the biologist in the highlands of Papua New Guinea says to herself, this, not this, again and again, until she comes up with a name for the blue butterfly, as large as her hand, excuse me, adrift before her. To name is to offer a, a piece of ourselves to the world. It's such a human endeavor, isn't it? And also it gives us this false sense that we, we understand. You know, because we know the name of something, we think we understand it. And something, some portion of soul has endured through loss and descent and crosses over with us to the other side. Night itself has generated love with its images when we sort and name them we begin to attach to the images and to sort them in an assimilation crucial to life. During the sack of Troy, Virgil imagines Aeneas, the Trojan hero, escaping from the burning city with his father on his back. In turn, the father carries the little images, the little images of the gods that are a kind of seed to found the new city that will sometime, someday become Rome. The images, like names, give community, sorry, give continuity, a shape to what we discover. The soul goes secretly to work, bringing depth and richness to the strange newness that we enter as we escape the dark. Later, what has been separated out may come to seem too solid and will need to be dissolved again in a union of spirit and soul. But for now, this is just what we need, the delicious predict predictability and otherness of things, the beginning of consciousness. I can continue the paragraph, it is short. The second surrender. As we persevere in the work of the spirit, we find that we undertake a second voluntary surrender, parallel to the despair of the previous descent. In the first case, we surrendered because we had no choice. Now, as we rise, we surrender by letting go of what weights us down and blinds us to the night. After this, there will, be not, there will not be much question as to whether we shall continue on our journey. We become ascetic in a Static, yeah. Static in a voluptuous, 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 luling sort of fashion. We give up whether is whatever is in the way, recognizing that restraint 
provides the conditions for sweetness. This is not austerity for its own sake. In the monastery of the heart, spareness is our luxury and welcomes life in. I don't know about you guys, but I can't imagine a more important thing to do than what he's talking about. Do you guys have that feeling? No. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm still digesting it. I... Um, I like that he takes up what uh, he considers important and goes with it. It's really knowing who we are, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, there is a certain slant to it that he bases it on Western culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How, how do you mean? Well, what he presents here, in, in my opinion, is very interesting because it shows us our culture in a different way, in a novel way, in a fresh way. But I'm not sure whether I want to go this way or even try. I Yeah, I, I, I may mull it over but um is it any different than than you know like socrates or dogan said too about studying the self or knowing the self or well those those are you know very few phrases that maybe uh can get compared but do they really mean the same thing I think he, he couches uh, the concepts of Zen in a very um, earthy, sensual way, which is an interesting contrast. I think that's what is so interesting about his writing for me. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, yeah, I think that's a very Western way of expression. Like, so. Well, okay, again, to me, what it's coming to, to my head right now, it is, it is something that uh, especially probably in the 20th century uh, may have become much more public than it ever was before. Um, and so, of course, that continues into this this century. Um, so, yes, I, I like the, that you actually, um, how you described it, that he brings in um, a different way, a, a different focus uh, or um what should i call it um 
yeah, maybe maybe focus that is only part of what the, the Western culture uh, could be described by. I think As this yet. would be a good question for Peg. You know, to what extent would traditional Buddhists, would this make any sense to traditional Buddhists or is it more 20th century Western psychology? Exactly. The latter, because if if you look at the at the text, it is always that actually um, part of the practice is a mortification of senses, and that that. Wait, say that last phrase again. Mortification of senses. Oh, okay. So I mean, all the yoga stuff, and and especially in in the Buddhist, uh, yeah, in the Buddhist tradition. Um, I remember in one of the classes of many, many years ago that we have been reading with several really uh, topmost uh, scholars uh, sections in which uh, it was described how the monks should mortify their their bodies so they would not get aroused uh, seeing a woman or something like that. In terms of thought, we've talked about that, right? Yeah. 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 The... But it was also, so some of the instruction was that um, the women have been portrayed in such a way like you know, if you imagine them in sleep, they're, they're drooling from their mouth and, uh, you know, they are smelly during their menstruation. And, and I don't know what, what all the other things were. I don't remember everything. But that should have been sort of the, the put-offs for the monks. Turn off. Turn off, yeah. There was one story where he turned, where Buddha turns a young, beautiful woman into an old rag. What is that? <laughs> I don't, I don't remember. But uh, so to end the lust. I see. Well, that that's probably somewhere later in Mahayana. <laughs> There's a great graphic design book. Um, that is a series of photographs and drawings. And one of the photographs has a young woman looking at her reflection in the mirror and she's aged like 40, 50 years. It's a marvelous photo. Hmm. So, uh, sorry, I'm trying to imagine it. So are, are those two pictures next to each other or how is how is that? It's like it's a picture of a woman looking, a young model looking at herself in the mirror, mm -hmm. and the reflection that you can see from the side is um, all from the side. Yeah, yeah. You could see this older woman dressed the same with the same makeup, but mm -hmm. of course. Um, and I feel like that was one of the most important images that made me understood that physical beauty is 
not really worth much. So that is a very <laughs> significant part of our lives. Yes, it is. Yeah. Whether men or women. Yeah. Besides, during those young years, you don't know any better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think now, Emily. Um, there is a story of a scholar who came to study with a Zen teacher. The scholar knew exactly how meditation could benefit him and was eager to begin. The teacher was courteous and offered tea. The scholar tried to be patient while the water heated. Eventually, the teacher began to serve the tea. But when the cup was full, he did not stop pouring, and the tea ran down the sides of the cup onto the table and off the sides of the table onto the expensive tatami mat floor. The scholar, aghast, said, Stop! Stop! The cup is full! The teacher pointed out that the mind, too, cannot take in something new until it has been emptied. Mm -hmm. This story illustrates the value of having gone through the darkness of descent. Sorrow empties the cup. Mm -hmm. How do you think that is, that sorrow empties the cup? <clears throat> well, it is like, uh, I mean, it's not, not a, a really good comparison, but I would say it may function like a koan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So something breaks, right? And suddenly there is an opening. Well, he talks about earlier, um, when you're in the middle of darkness, you're kind of stuck. Mm -hmm. So this, this is beyond that, that middle of darkness, it seems. When you let go of something. Am I reading now? I think I am. Mm -hmm. yes. Spiritual work is erratic until we decide to keep doing it no matter what, to make the disciplines of attention an ordinary part of life. <laughs> Surrender also acknowledges the power of this good work, accepting that it goes on even when the results are not obvious. This is a, con a consoling realization, as will be seen from another story by the woman who, in her, her earlier dream, stepped onto the dance floor. Recently, before a seven-day retreat, I ran into a younger man who often had painful meditation experiences and wished him a good retreat. I know all your retreats are wonderful, he said, and I thought, no, it's just that the horrible ones have been wonderful too. <laughs> but I'm trying to say, who's saying what? Oh, he said. And I thought, I see. Okay. 
the tears of the way. When we surrender, the soul begins to help with spiritual project, with the spiritual project. Soul doesn't seem to travel any faster than a horse. So it makes the spirit wait until it can catch up. A sudden regression can occur just when we feel that we are doing very well. Such hesitation allows us to catch our breath and pet our pockets to make sure we have included the whole of us before we step through into the new life. This is like the moment when Psyche, having completed almost every task required for her freedom, opens the box she is carrying back from the underworld and is assailed by deadly sleep. At such a time, we can't see the bottom of our emotions or where they will lead. Each new degree of nakedness seems to be absolutely required of us. We need the patience to bless even our weakness. This odd weakness that seems to come not when we are helpless, as it does in darkness, in the darkest night, but when we are full of strength and rising. Such a lapse into inexplicable waiting happened for a woman who had achieved considerable spiritual force. She was in a retreat, had attained the steadiness and confidence to press on, and felt that confidence and clarity begin to emerge. Nothing spectacular, but growing assurance of her welcome on earth. Then suddenly, she seemed defeated by an unexpected grief. As the retreat continued, she just watched her life move before her and she wept. Day after day, until the weeping itself began to change. Yep. I can continue. I had been meditating deeply and began to feel that. Through this practice, I was finding my balance for the first time. I became flooded by memories of my father and of the pain I had suffered from his absence and from being handed around to foster homes, neglected and disregarded. I had thought that I was opening up and then suddenly this, this thick personal material seized me. I was totally catched up. I wept and wept. Everything I wept, wept. wept. I wept and wept. Everything I saw seemed a fresh occasion for tears. As I watched for several days, my mood began to change and the tears became more impersonal, ca casualless. Causeless, without cause. Causeless. 
the tears of being moved by life. I was seized by a tenderness, especially for unseen, neglected, and abandoned things. A particular shade of blue in the sky at dawn, the bones of mice dropped by owls. Wow. His imagery is so unbelievable, isn't it? Yes. Well, he might be describing some of his experience. And it looks like that it, it is quite personal. These, these later tears are the tears of initiation. Tears like blood are life's water, a fluid anointing the time, dissolving obstacles in the hardness of heart. They unbind us, translate us to ourselves, are the medium in which we move between one way of being and another. We cannot say that they have any other particular meaning. And while tears of this kind are not the same as the tears of grief, they take the place that grief used to occupy. Something large is turning over in the... <laughs> inner life, and this means great changes are on the way. We shall not be who we were, and some acknowledgement of what is being left behind must be made. Our most sincere effort can convey us only as far as the fracturing of certainty. Then we enter the straits of passage and weeping, say goodbye to our prejudices and petty wants and also to the control of our fate. We are taken up into largeness. This happened to me during a month-long retreat when I began to open in spite of, or perhaps because of, strong inner turmoil. It was one of my first intensive retreats led by a jolly Tibetan Lama who with his gloomy assistant, also Tibetan, visited Australia. They made up for their inexperience with Westerners by their enthusiasm, generosity, and very traditional Asian teaching. The gloomy teacher whom I didn't much like would drone on each long summer afternoon, and I would wriggle like a schoolchild. I began to suspect that my irrational irritation was rather shallow, not really, not really the point. One day, as I was listening and meditating, not doing anything special, I began to weep. Is it web, right? Or whip? Right. Um, this was quite involuntary. Weeping, weeping was not 
at the time in my repetitor, repetitor. Repertoire. Repertoire. Yet, there was no impulse to damn the flow. In that moment, I felt that I was on the shores of Galilee, hearing Jesus speak and understood that all the great, great wisdom comes from the same source. With my amazement, compassion awoke in me. It didn't matter if the teacher didn't understand Westerners. If he wasn't such a great teacher, if I wasn't much of a student, if my character provided infertile ground, I knew that I could not judge these things accurately. At that moment, it was not important to consider them. I was weeping the tears of the way. That's interesting. Lightness, while soul is grounded and moist and has roots, spirit seems to want to rise into air, to white mountains, to the sky, and to panoramic views of mortal life. So our climb toward the light, while it is interlaced with moments of soul, belongs mainly to the transcendent realm of the spirit. <coughs> Nirvana, the traditional Sanskrit term for being awake, refers to the snuffing of out of a lamp and by extension the extinction of all desire and attachment to life. This aspect of the Eastern tradition reflects a stance that puts spirit at the center. When Buddhists take initiation names referring to stones, snow and nothingness, or Christians long to imitate Christ, to live without stain, to be celibate, 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 to do only the works of God, they follow this impulse. Spirit consoles and heals through its impersonal force. There is lots of space, but no furniture in its living room. The attitude is perennial. In many traditions, orthodox spiritual fantasies are about transcendences, stillness, equanimity, refuge from the flags. The yearning from transcendence entails moving from away from the body, refusing the condition 
in which we are as East Yates. Yates, as Yates so empathically put it, fastened to a dying animal, even in the pagan world, no one was allowed to die or be born on the island of Delos. The shrine, the shrine, shrine. 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 Yeah. There was not to be tainted by our blood, our mortality, our life. My early Tibetan teachers had a, a good cop, bad cop routine. The laughing one would evoke the joy of life and then leave us to the mercies of his more junior assistant who pointed out the inevitability of suffering and taught us to imagine our own death, the farewell to life, the disintegration of the body, the awareness that remained. It seemed a natural process now that I have seen more death, but at the time I remember haggling about what I would give up first, as if I would have a choice. <coughs> Much of the struggle of accepting death seemed to go on unconsciously and was revealed in the difficulty everyone, everybody had in concentrating. The facility with which we fell asleep during the indeterminate lectures, the frequency with which we stole off to start love affairs or to look for chocolate, the retreat was a painful struggle, so I learned to ignore ache, aches, sorrows, plans, memories, spiritual ambition, and other usual entertainments, and to discover meditations composed of nothing but clear space. <coughs> the radiance of the Jolly Lama began to make sense because his buoyant spirit was founded on an acceptance of the descent of suffering and an objective knowledge of the mind. And this is the strategy of the spirit to release our tight hold on the foreground of life and turn toward the vast darkness that we call God. We are grateful then for the distances and the space and space that compose the spirit. There are many forms of this filmy evanescence, this likeness of the spirit. Some emergency room physicians use black humor to entertain sanity, excuse me, to maintain sanity and even empathy without identifying with each agony wheeled through the doors. And a dying man may not be interested in his pains may take great delight in the sight of a rose, of a tired nurse brushing back her hair, may understand that this moment in the oncology ward is also eternal life. His spiritual practice is just to listen and watch and breathe. There's a nice definition of spiritual practice, isn't it? Yes. Uh-huh. Listen, watch, and breathe. Yes.
the immortality of childhood. Tears cleans us and it's, it's cleanse. Cleanse. Tears cleanse us and pull the present moment around us. Then the spirit takes over again and meditation retrieves the lost. Endless afternoon of childhood. Innocence in its positive aspect. At the moment, the newborn infant is thrown into the human realm of wailing and hunger and soft skin. Her eyes seem to carry a memory of the unclouded spaces from which she has so recently arrived. It is as if a vast being peered out through the tiny form and for a little while we can peer back in the other direction and see eternity. Yeah, young, no, youthful, youthful, pristine, and furrowed by experience, the spirit has an affinity with the child. We remember all our lives, the things we met as children, the kitchen smell of cooking oil, rosemary, and thyme, and thyme. No, thyme, thyme is right. It's a time, time. The early winter darkness folding about our shoulders. Such things make the world for us. They carry the taste of life itself. The threads out of which we wave our story and the reason we came here to have a body, to dwell in houses and walk in shopping malls. As it grows, the soul will work with such ingredients and make them dense and resonant. 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 But now they are simply clear and vivid. The Zen teacher, Shuru Suzuki, made popular the notion of beginner's mind. In the beginner's mind, are many possibilities, he said in the experts' view. Spirit has this mind of setting out. When, uh, when I left an infant daughter to see her first rose, her eyes grow wide. It is as if she falls into the expanding petals. And as I watch her, she is my rose. I too sink into the firstness that still surrounds her. Wow, that's beautiful. The clear mind then belongs to spirit. In spirit's domain, when we take Seville orange marmalade so bitter and sweet, there is, not, there is for that moment nothing else in the world. When we hear rain, it is the eternal rain, the rain beating on the galvanized roof of a hut in the mountains of Tasmania. 
the rain sliding silently off the windows of a high room in the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco, while the traffic runs in rivers of light far below. The eternal rain is not happy or sad. It is eternal, and that in itself fills us with joy. At the moment of birth, the spirit is life itself, all there is. But there is nothing to hold the experience while soul and character may be developing moment by moment, they have not yet arrived. In our maturity, often the opposite is true. Consciousness has developed, but the openness is not there. In order to grow, we have had to take a particular form and forswear all others to develop a way of loving and of fighting, a taste in music and in food. We chose we choose without knowing where our choice will lead. We are shaped by what we seize and what we refuse. This path is human and good, but we pay for it with the loss of our original fusion with the eternal. When spirit filled the most of our days. So when spirit comes to an adult, it comes as a return and as an astonishment. Impossible, beautiful, alarming. It cracks us open. I remember as a boy standing at the side of a gorge in Lanceston in Tasmania, watching the swift shallow water and a girl standing in it up to her knees. Everything was settled and at the peace in the sunlight. As I watched, the hills began to sing. I could hear them as an indistinct choir. Indistinct. In the choir. <laughs> choir. It doesn't look like it, does it? No. <laughs> then they began to shimmer and dance. It seemed clear that we were linked, hills and humans, in a deep, objective way. And this connection made life true and my usual fears irrelevant. My ordinary worries about love, fights, exams, and winning games, and even about the death of friends, all of those were far foreground against a great background. And at that moment of inner stillness, the background had come near. Years later, I learned this was a common experience in the Zen tradition, to see the mountains dancing and witness the secret joy at the heart of the universe. But I was not then particularly spiritual in inclination. I was a boy in high school, a football player with an interest in literature. In retrospect, it seems odd that I wasn't surprised, but I wasn't. 
Ah, it's so true, I thought. I had suspected this all along without knowing that I did. Most of us have known this kind of on-site, on-sought mysticism. We were going along about our business when suddenly an angel touches us on the shoulder. We recognize that light pressure. It is as if we have been waiting for it all our lives. Sometimes a very young child will say things like, the tree is talking to me. The, <laughs> the child is not just an, an animist, animus, um, attributing her life to everything else. She offers an understanding of the communion of each thing in the universe with each other thing. Is an animus one who sees an uh, animal or, or in, in everything? I don't think it's about seeing necessarily. Yeah, recognizing. Uh, it, it says attributing her own life to everything else. And then the communion of each thing. The belief that all natural phenomena, including human beings, animals, and plants, but also rocks, lakes, mountains, weather, and so on, share one vital quality, the soul and spirit that energizes them. So it's the idea that everything has a soul, an anim animism. I, I'm not sure. I, I would not... Uh... Maybe that's how he puts I'm, it. Maybe yeah. what? I, the, may, maybe that's how he puts it, but uh, it's not necessarily an animism if he uh, believes that everything has a soul. A woman tending a dying friend took a week weekend off by the ocean. When she walked outside, the landscape opened up and she saw each daisy and poppy in the field as the whole world. And she fell into them, herself dissolving into the expanse of sky and air and the flowers. The late plein air paintings of Monet speak to this sort of epiphany and also Blake's lines to see the world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Hearing the voice of crickets on the poles of the hills in this way, we know the bass note of joy underneath human misery and pleasure. We are content with our portion of the greatness of life and with our portion of its sorrow too. The mere memory of such an experience can carry us through our hardest times. After his death, 
his housekeeper picked up Blaise Pascal's overcoat and found it oddly heavy. Soon, 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 soon into the lining were papers containing an account of this, of his own meeting with eternity, the story of which he carried everywhere with him next to his skin. Tears, he wrote, tears of joy. A good spiritual tradition offers a map through such experiences and a way to consolidate the gift, a packet to carry in our coats, its weight pulling at us slightly in the super market, in, a, in the supermarket and the boardroom. As a child, I once tossed a coin off the wharf into the dark water. I could feel still the shudder that ran up my back as it disappeared. Now I think of wishing wells where money is thrown into the water as a payment that enables us to speak our dreams and of meditation in which when it, whatever we clap onto is soon released and leaves no trace. I suppose the boy staring into the water was standing on the threshold of the life so much greater than himself. It was all about him. Everything he did seemed irrevocable. And what he had sacrificed in order merely to live and to grow seemed lost forever. When I discovered meditation, it became for me a way of recovering the childhood coin. Hmm. Should we stop here? I think we can stop here. So page 111, repetition. I'm going to write it down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's today's the eighth. Okay, we'll do our 10 minutes now of walking, writing, meditating, singing. And Emily left us. Uh, it appears so. Who would like to share? I can just mention that I I, I came back to the sentence about um, uh, throwing out the darkness and uh, and like the, the, the empty emptying the cup. Um, the, the, it's, you like that story. Yeah, um, so I was just thinking about this. And, uh, I'm just thinking that maybe it's, I mean, at least for me, I, I imagine this like that you just, you throw, throw this, the, the, the darkness and um, to like do, I don't know, like a reset yourself. Um, and, but the, 
to, to be ready for another round of sorrow. To, to fill it up again with sorrow, the, the cup. Yeah, so, I mean, I was maybe connecting, trying to connect the, his previous talk about um, uh, about the need of experiencing the, uh, the the darkness before things get better. Uh, before things get better, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's the thing that struck me. I was just thinking about that during the 10 minutes. Did you want to say something, Trotty? I think you're uh, muted. Sorry, I didn't notice that. I just wanted to say, um, that I was also, I, I was doing kinhing, but I, you know, I didn't last long just to be aware of my foot is rising, going down. My my mind was busy with, uh, with the reading and I actually appreciate it. I, I like how he writes. That's all. I, I wrote something. Um, I'll show you the drawing first. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> Why maybe? Oh. A kid throws a coin into the vast dark sea. His world was just he and the coin. But now the coin disappears into something so vast and mysterious, he is awestruck. It is as if he turns the world inside out and he changes his clothes from something to everything. At first, he seems to be, at first, it seems he is eaten up by the gigantic sea, but soon he realizes he is the sea, leaving his skin on the shore. Wow, I see. Yeah, now it makes sense. <laughs> so that what we were reading kind of just went through me, you know. Yeah. It was very beautiful. I'm so glad we're reading this. So am I, yes. Thank you. Okay. Should we call it a night? Sure. We might get in trouble. Why? Eight minutes early. Oh, I, I don't think anybody is going to join us now. Okay. <laughs> Take right. care. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. -bye. Bye.